Hi, I'm Laura Allen. And I'm Liv Austin. And between us, we are a songwriter, actor, singer, producer, and the hosts of My Amazing Mess, a podcast where we talk to creatives who are right in the middle of developing their own unique careers. They are totally honest with us about what it takes to pursue their dream job, the exciting highs, the disheartening lows, and the amazing mess that is everything in between. Hi everyone, it's Liv here. Just reminding you that we are not doing any more interviews because we are all self-isolating and we can't have any guests over. We are sharing some tasters from some of our favourite episodes from the archives. And this week we are revisiting our interviews with Jessica Sharman, who is a songwriter, and Peter Groom, who is an actor, theatre maker and choreographer. So first up is a bit from our chat with Jessica Sharman, who is a wonderful, accomplished, super talented songwriter who was such fun to talk to and if you want to hear the whole episode it is still available on my amazing mess wherever you get your podcasts from series one i hope you enjoy stay home stay safe and stay connected with us on social media see you there You have to try and get under the skin of the genre and not really judge it on whether it's your personal taste but what is the song doing? What's it doing for somebody else? And what are the positives within it? And then how can you draw on those? But it, it was it was just a great way to always know that I could write a song a day because you have tools to do it. Did you find that there were genres that you kind of had to, to write in that you kind of went, oh, I actually really enjoy this i didn't think that i mean rap i'm my my next goal is is to be a rapper oh my god Um, i'd love to hear a rap written by you it'd be really good though because you know you're a great lyricist well yeah but i'm not sure people would buy my (laughs) my rapping style i really enjoyed that that was one of the things that i really liked and like really understood hip-hop from a different perspective listening to kind of old school hip-hop like and and how it's developed and the sort of musicality of it and, and where certain things uh, emphasised and, and why the the hooks and the bass lines and that is also important. It was, that was really fascinating for me. It's, it's also where I kind of learnt to really graft a country song because I'd loved, I loved country music. My sister did a year abroad in Canada and would send me all of these kind of new music things. Well, not new music because that sounds like Spotify, but you know, would send me CDs, mixed CDs of all the new music coming out in Canada. She'd burn stuff. And American music had a huge influence on me, but a lot of that was Dixie Chicks and and kind of all all those country things. So I, I guess I had a, it, I had it in my system, but to actually go, okay, you need three chords and the truth. That's, you know, that's the basis for a country song. Go listen to it, go write it. That was really interesting and wasn't something I'd ever, but again, because the UK didn't really have that. It wasn't like a genre that was available, you know, in the top 40 or in in the charts. Um, so, yeah, r- rap and country. <laughs> <laughs> so so from the um, the time that you were just getting out of that nine months, was it nine months, of course, mm-hmm. was it was country the thing that you thought, right, I'm now going to step or was it something that you kind of found as you as you left? I think I felt confident having understood what country music really was and what the the meaning behind it was and the idea of stories. And I loved that. I loved, 
I really kind of felt I gravitated toward that genre because I liked the idea of telling stories. And Taylor Swift, the Speak Now record was kind of coming out when I was there. So we, I was also, you, you're taught how to do production. So that's where I learned kind of how to produce. And one of the things in the production lessons was like, listen to a production you love and analyze it. Where do the drums kick in? What's that cool instrument that comes in at 22 seconds? Where do they pan the vocals? And one of the Taylor Swift one was Enchanted. And I just thought that production and that song was so cool. But it was never really like, I'm going to go out and be a songwriter and write country music. It was, I've got a load of tools to kind of write songs. What I did mostly when I came out of music school was top lines. So I'd just email everyone in Sundry and just be like, hi, I'm a songwriter. I do top lines. Do you have any tracks? So it was a lot of it was like dance music. What and... is a top line for those who are listening that don't know, like me? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm learning so much. <laughs> this is why it's great to have Laura here to be like, I don't. Oh, yeah. Me, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, top line is where you write the, sometimes you have a top liner who just does lyrics. We have a top liner who just does melody or they, a top liner can do lyrics and melody. But what they will do is they will go, get get sent a backing track. So a producer will create like an instrumental, send it over, and then the top liner will add melody and lyrics to it. So for a really easy example is David Guetta had the instrumental of Titanium and sent it to Sia and she wrote the lyrics and the melody on top. So yeah, I was doing a lot of that and going into studios and just knocking on doors being like the most, the squeakiest wheel. Um, because it's it's you kind of have to have it it's like a mixture of no shame but like understanding that you really don't want to piss people off because it's a really small industry <laughs> so you don't but you need to kind of also be politely no shaming no not no shaming but politely um just ballsy and just knock on doors and be yeah like, you, um, i mean you yeah. have to put yourself out there to begin yeah. with because you have to you know tell people who you are don't you exactly <laughs> and, and, otherwise... and, and no one will hear it yeah. and um something that happened really early on was I was working with a great producer there was a super um production house in Acton called Stanley House Stanley House Productions it was um Hugh Padgham's kind of old studio he he did a lot of the Sting stuff um and I was writing with a producer in there and we had the song and there was a great singer um who is yeah now doing his own artist project called Elsha and he was this just this energy he was super positive but he had this incredible voice and they said oh we're doing um pitches there's a couple of like pop acts that are coming out and we're doing pitches for them and one of them was for JLS and so we wrote this song and it was like proper JLS like really fitted in and I was like oh my god this is amazing it sounded just like it you know it was playing it to all my friends and like my fans they were like oh my god totally hear this being cut and like sent it off to the A&R guy and I was like oh I've basically got a cut on the JLS record like that's what's happening like <laughs> absolutely nailed it and the you know the A&R would be like this you would email back going this is nice um we'll see and then you'd sort of be like okay okay well it's um oh it's been two weeks and haven't heard it on the radio yet like oh it's actually uh, been three months and uh, oh you've not got replied and you suddenly again it was a little bit like what happened when it was 16 like you had all this stuff that was really exciting and like oh my god this is it and you know the A&R guy and you suddenly realise how far away having a song it's sounding like the band sending it to the A&R guy and it actually getting cut that distance is enormous and it also taught me the most valuable lesson to not tell anyone whether a song was being cut until it was actually out 
because all anyone asked me for the next six months, like, oh, what happened to that JLS thing? You were right for JLS, right? And I was like, oh God, I was such a dork. This is the most embarrassing thing because I basically just had a song that sounded like them and had an A&R contact. So it taught me to not really say who I was writing for, or talk about who I'm writing for, but not say that anything was actually happening until it was out. And you hear horror stories, like I had people who were working with really big acts and it was actually, you, you know, it was cut. I had one friend who was a dear writer friend of mine. He had a track on a on a record, really big American artist, and it was track 13. And the label decided they wanted 12 tracks and they just cut his track because it was number 13. And you're thinking, well, A, that's so depressing because like surely you'd go through and listen to what songs you... But it, it, it that was just how it was. And this was like two weeks before it came out. And you think, so he's actually got to way further <laughs> stage than I had just doing a demo and it all been recorded and cut by the, you know, so that, that was a very valuable lesson and sort of dealt me quite a big, big wedge of humble pie to sort of sit there and go, okay, be that's, a bit more. Yeah, that's a good lesson, isn't it? Because you think it's two weeks away. So surely now I can yeah. tell people, yeah. you know, but even then you even don't then, know. No. And until, for me, even like seeing pre-order stuff, I've heard stories where, you know, it's been on a pre-order and then it comes out and it's not there. And it's like, oh, don't worry, we're putting it on the deluxe. And then, and it's just the slight humanity. I don't know if you've had it with acting, but if you tell someone when you're going for an audition and then all anyone ever asks you for the next three months, oh, how was that audition? And you're like, well... If I'd got it, I would have told you. You know, it's it's one of those things. Totally. And also people never understand if they're not in the industry that, that I've come across. A lot of people don't understand what that means. That, yeah. That if you didn't get it, you must have been really bad. You yeah. Know? It's like, yeah. It wasn't. Well, it might have been the case. Also, <laughs> yeah. but, but most of the time it, it really is, you know, just to get in the room, you've mm. already whittled down. I mean your chances of even just getting in the room are so small and then you get in the room and you're thinking okay now it's just am I tall enough and my eyes the right yeah. color do I sound right yeah and can I do the job it's, yeah yeah there are a lot of parallels uh, I think with with your songs and and being an actor I think about it with like pitching for sync mm. you know trying to get mm. your your music in a film or a tv show or something and there's a lot of the same stuff because yeah you have to be good and you have to get the attention of the right people but then after that so much stuff can happen and not yeah. happen and even if you get a part you know if it's a if it's a pilot do you get the part does the pilot actually get made does it get made into a tv show like mm-hmm. all this stuff and you can have a song in a pilot and you yeah. think oh great that's going to go on to the tv show and it doesn't and it doesn't and then there's nothing in it and you've then told people because you've start you're starting to feel confident you know I remember watching like behind the scenes or like extra stuff on the love actually and there are like two storylines that had to get cut because oh. the film was too long like two entire storylines oh. that they come back to that they just had to, take, had to out. take out and so if you're maybe in one scene you can think I might not be in it I might get cut but if you're in a big film and there are several scenes there's a whole storyline you don't think that all of that is going to get taken away mm. but it might be you know mm. you have no control until it's out so that's uh, definitely sobering yeah <laughs> I'm yes sure, it yeah. is and and it was both it was again it's sort of always kind of very happy sad it was like a really cool thing to know that there's there's this opportunity that you can work with people and you can create something and you know when I played it to friends and family they're like oh I can totally hear this they were like and I think that was also one of the songs that people went okay actually you're not just sort of you know standing on stage with a guitar it was like oh you're actually like properly grafting and doing different things and you know it's quite hooky and catchy but as pop songs kind of have to be and I think it's sort of 
maybe kind of some of my friends were like, okay, this, you know, could be something. It was, it was, it was a good early lesson. But so I, I did a lot of, come back to your question about 10 minutes ago. Um, I did lots of like dance top lines and things before because they were very easy to do. People could send them to me. I knew how to record my voice so I could send it back. It all, it all worked quite well. But it, it was then that I started to realize that pitching I mean, I probably did it for about two, two and a half to three years without representation, without a publisher, without a manager, without anything. And it is soul destroying. Like it is so depressing. And I have all of these songs that would be great Kelly Clarkson tracks or great this. And, you know, but pitching also goes out of date so quickly because what happens is a label will send out what's called like a a who's looking list. And they'll say so-and-so is looking for a song. One of my favorite ones was... Uh, I think it was like Rihanna's looking for a song needs to sound like Coldplay, Adele, Ed Sheeran, um, you know, The Weeknd. And you're like, these are all, do you just basically want it to be a hit? Do you just want it to be number one? Like, is it that none yeah. of those like sound, sound anything same. like Rihanna and yeah. all sound and all the same. Yeah. But you, you kind of get them and you realise you're trying to fit a genre or fit an artist in a production style that by the time it gets to the artist will be six months out of date. And it also is that world is very much like who you know. If you know the A&R guy or the person who's, that's like an artist in repertoire, who's like working the artist's album or, you know, their main point of contact at the label. If you know them and they can go, I they're definitely, they need one more song or they're looking for this. You've got much more of a chance than like cold emailing going, hi, I've got this and I think this will work. But Again, it was very good to kind of, it meant I worked with lots of different producers and lots of different top liners or or singers. And I, you know, met a really great group of kind of singing people. And actually that was where um, a co-writer, a friend of mine, Mary Erskine, um, who's in a band called Me for Queen, her and I were doing a lot of kind of co-writing together with a um, another producer called Chris Bangs. And we had all these, you know, songs that sounded like all the people that we, you know, that had the Who's Looking list. But they were really good songs and we were like, oh, this is like miserable that these are never going to get heard. And I was going to various publishing meetings or, you know, manager meetings. And they said, listen, we really can't take you seriously unless you have a cut. And a cut is basically a song released. So after like the fifth publishing meeting where you go in and of course it's another thing. It's like people ask you what you're doing today. It's like, oh, well, I've got, uh, you know, a meeting at Sony. (gasps) Oh my God, you signed to Sony. It's like, no, I'm literally just probably going to go and meet their intern who's gonna just tell me that I've got no hope in hell um but you know you sort of come back and it was after the fifth sort of meeting that I was just like screw this if people want a song released I'm just gonna release one of the pictures that I've done Our second taster for this week is from our episode with Peter Groom, a theatre maker, actor and choreographer. Pete spoke to us about what it's like to sustain a career as both an actor and a choreographer and how he's discovering he can create new work for himself. If you like the talk and want to listen to the full episode or any others, they are all available wherever you get your podcasts. You know, if there's anything more soul destroying. And I thought, no, 
this isn't in any way creative. What do I find creative? And I was like, thought that that was creative. So I, I just booked a flight and went to stay with my friend in Wuppertal. And she was like, just come take class here. In the mornings, you can come. You can take two classes. The teachers won't mind. And so I just went. I stayed maybe a week with her. And then a friend of mine said, oh, there's a, this audition in Berlin. You should go. And so I got on a coach. He looked back and he think, how, why? <laughs> like, how, it, you know, it sounds bonkers talking about it. Yeah, I got on a coach, paid 15 euros to get on a coach and went from Wuppertal all the way across to Berlin. I auditioned for this play. I mean, auditioned is a big word. I went to this director's house and we sat around a kitchen table and he talked, talked to us about the play. He had to spit about ourselves. He's like, thank you very much. And we all left. And then he called me the next day and says, yeah, you've got the job. And it was uh, um, it was called Meat, like M-E-80, um, by a guy called Thomas Bo Nielsen, uh, who's Swedish. And it was um, an installation. So he built inside Schaubühne in Berlin, a village, essentially. And it had five or six apartments, like proper apartments. It had a, a shopping mall in it. It had a nail salon. It had a, a pub, a working pub. It had a, a nightclub. It had a hotel, a Chinese restaurant. It was insane. And there was maybe 40 or 50 of us in the cast. It was like a living village everyone kept calling it in berlin like punch drunk but on speed it was like based around this guy called luca maniota who was a serial killer who the director had i think spoken to on grinder i think and then met him in a nightclub they danced this night whatever the director left luca stayed whatever it turned out that then later that night luca had killed all these people but he'd been killing people before and so i think it was to do with how the proximity to that kind of violence that we live in sometimes unknowingly, you know. And the installation, I think, was the director's vision of if you had asked Luca Maniota, like, tell us about your childhood, how did you get to that point? That's what the installation was. So it was sort of like you were walking around his mind. We all had characters and we worked on them for months and you just worked in your family group so I didn't meet a lot I didn't meet a lot of the other actors until the show and so you would be in the hotel and there'd be these people that you didn't know and, and they ran and they actually ran the hotel I mean like a proper hotel and the people who ran the pub ran it like a proper pub they had to order the beer they had to do all this sort of stuff and you worked from like you know zero to the time of the play so you knew exactly what had happened to your character throughout these years and and we go on trips as, as families. So me, my sister, my character's sister, and uh, we were staying with a friend of hers inside this institution. We were staying with a friend of hers and her husband. So the four of us would go to a pub and have to have an afternoon. That would be the rehearsal that day. We'd have to go to a pub and have drinks together. And the director would be sat at the next table sort of watching us. And then we'd get notes on it the next day. It was very weird. It was like live-in you know, very like Mike Lee, you know. And then the actual show, once it opened, ran for only 10 days, but it ran solidly for 10 days. So we just lived those people for 10 days. And as an audience, you it was open 24 hours a day. The audience bought a ticket for four hours and they could come in and just walk around and be part of it and speak to us. I remember the director saying that the, the main rule is you can't ignore the audience. And it was fine. Our our house was quite open. It had that kind of vibe. But some people would throw audience out of their flat. There was a guy 
we, I heard from somebody else. He came home one day to find, you know, some audience members in his flat. He's like, what the fuck are you doing in my house? Get the hell out. And they'd be like, what, what we're here for? And he's like, what? You, I don't care. Get out. <laughs> He'd throw these people out of his house. It was crazy. And then um, it was, it was a bizarre, I don't think I'll ever do anything like that. It was everybody. We all had phones, like character phones. And um, we had to have an online presence. That was our character. So we all had Facebook, but like character Facebook and character email. And, and what would be odd is the audience who are real would come and see the show, add you on Facebook and then go home and then talk to you. So I'm still in the installation acting and they are at home in the real world messaging me or calling me or texting me. It was very odd. It was and sort of the lines of what was real and not real. People, a guy asked me out on a date as my character. He's like, oh, can I meet you in the pub on Friday? I'll meet you at eight. Like, I'll come pick you up at your house and take you to the pub. And I was like, yeah, sure. And it was all real. It, but it wasn't because I was, it was a fascinating thing in, in that you, there was no acting. Because there was no story. We weren't building to anything. Um, there was no, um, this has to happen at this point. You just lived that person's life. And I remember the director saying, you know, don't be worried that it's boring. And, uh, you know, some days I'd sit and watch films for six hours. But that's what people do. Like, you know, when you're home or you chat on the phone or or you'd call, you'd call friends that I had a friend who she worked in the news agent. And so I would call her and be like, oh, you're free tonight. Do you want to hang out? And we'd hang out and go and get Chinese food. It, it was all very, very odd. I don't think I've ever heard of anything quite like that. No. It, same it's not yeah i mean where did the lines get blurred i mean that must have been a bit of a mind meld kind of 10 days just living that and not knowing where the lines were yeah and and how is it on day 10 when you say goodbye to your character it was very odd that i think they showed all the audience out and they and we were allowed to sort of stay in the installation for about four or five hours and everybody just talked and sort of let their character, it sounds, you know, methody or I don't know, but everyone sort of just chilled out and went back to themselves. And I think there was, it was funny, we quickly developed a thing with the other actors or some of them, only some of them, because some of them could do it for the whole time. I couldn't. And I'd have to sort of look at people and be like, just give them a wink or just look into their eyes to be like, we both know this isn't real. Okay, now we're good. Now we can carry on. Because the, the, it gets very quickly distorted, what is real and not real. Also, I was living in a sex dungeon. I should have said that before. But yeah, my, just, you know, throwing <laughs> that in. Yeah, so my, my, uh, myself and my sister had um, run away from England because she had been involved in some kind of crime. I, I want to say she killed somebody, but maybe not as bad as that. Maybe she just really, really beat up somebody I can't remember but we had to leave England so she wanted to get involved in sort of the S&M business so she had met this woman online who we had gone to meet in Berlin and that's who we were staying with so this woman again a character ran an S&M business uh, she was a dominatrix from her house so the living room in our house doubled as a sex dungeon so some days it would be a sex dungeon some days it wouldn't be it was extraordinary. I mean, yeah. I mean, my greatest regret is not coming to see yeah. this show because I really wish I had seen this myself. This would have been 
I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'll ever get to see anything like it. No, I mean, the closest things it. I've seen is um, punch, mm. punch drunk. Punch drunk. Yeah. But they have a plan. I mean, they have, you know, they're, they're doing things. One thing leads to another. They have a bit of choreography. They have a scene. And once, it runs again, doesn't it? It yeah. goes around again in case you missed once anything. Once you leave that and it's sort of expansive and just you go, just live. It's like, oh, it's hmm. very odd. And sometimes the audience then start performing. That was, that's very weird. <sighs> So how did you get from that job <laughs> back into Peter Groom, the theatre maker, dance theatre maker, and now with an amazing production, um, Natural Duty, the story of Marlena Dietrich, mm-hmm. and, and finding drag in that way. Like, where, When did that start to, or had that been going on for, for a while? I was lucky in that Newcastle, which where I'm from, uh, there's a place called Dance City and they had really invested time in me and they had said, you know, come and make some stuff for us. Here's a studio. You have, have two weeks, play around, see what you make. And they kept doing that sort of every few months. So I kept having this place to go back to, to keep making things. And I think all of these experiences that I was having in Berlin or I was in Manchester for a while was sort of all feeding into that and making me think, well, what do I think is interesting to watch or, or what am I in- interested to show or uh, make and eventually I applied to be their artist in residence and they gave me a year of studio time and support so you, I could make things and the outcome of the end of that was to make a, a show which well, not a full show it was about 30 minutes um, which was called Go Away Johnny we did that half an hour and that was the first time that I'd looked for funding and got funding from Arts Council. That was a really formative sort of step because through Dance City, I met a producer who I've been working with since on dance stuff. And now we've just, just in October, just gone that piece is now an hour. They gave us more support. So it's now developed a whole hour. It's like the first full length dancing that I've done. And hopefully we'll tour that in 2020. What else did you ask me? <laughs> how did you? How did you drag? Drag, and then you know the story of Marlena. Of yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, drag. It's funny looking back at it. It seems hugely obvious, <laughs> you know. I'm like, well, of course you did that because that. I even remember singing a Marlena Dietrich song in um, uh, singing technique class, and the pianist saying, "Oh, be careful! It's a bit too Marlena now." <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, hindsight, you think, God, that's funny. I had always found her interesting. I think I'd known her since I was maybe 13, 14. And I first, it's the image of her that I first thought was interesting. I think she was very, she's very cold and she's very distant on first appearance. And I think she's not cute and sweet, really, in any way. And I don't think I am. And I, I think I, as a 13, 14 year old, super self-conscious, you're, I didn't look like anybody else in our school or anywhere, actually. I was like, nobody looks like me and and, and not in a good way, you know. Mm. I thought everybody, I'm sort of huge, very tall and very gangly and um, very thin with this face that isn't particularly pretty or attractive it's a good face but it's not you know I didn't feel cute or sweet or like a 14 year old should think oh what a nice kid I don't think I was ever that (laughs) it's like it's quite serious (laughs) um so I think her image 
I thought, God, that's a really empowering image of somebody who goes, I don't give a crap what you think about me, I think. And then the more, more I read about her life, I just liked her. But it was a sort of private obsession, really, that I just thought she was fascinating. And I learned a lot of her songs just because I liked her and because I wanted to know them. And then drag happened, drag happened because a friend of ours, are we allowed to say who? Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Matt had a party. You can cut that out if you want to make it sound like we... Oh, no, because we talked about drama school. Yeah. So say if you wanted to make it sound like we were like more... I more don't know. professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no like, way past that. It's all, our, it's all our mates just having a chat. Yeah. Um, uh, just bringing the listeners on for the ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Matt had a party, Halloween party, and he's like, I'm going to have a Halloween party. It's going to be big and we're going to have a great time. Everyone has to go really full out on the costumes. Like, everyone's got to go nuts. So what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I don't know. And he's like, go as Marlena Dietrich. That'll be funny because you love her anyway. And just do that. So I did. And I, I went all out. I went to that party and someone took a photo at that party and got on Facebook. And then a friend of mine who worked at BAC, who ran the events there, said, oh, I've just seen a photo of you on Facebook as Marlena Dietrich. We're doing this New Year's party. Will you come and host it as her? And I was like, uh, I'm not a drag performer. She was like, oh, it doesn't matter. Just wear the same thing that you had. And it's this much money. So I, okay. <laughs> you know, I do drag now. <laughs> I do. I'm very good at it. Um, and so I used that money to buy better makeup that she was going to pay me because I don't like doing anything. I know I like it to look good. And I thought, and also because I really liked Marlena, I didn't want her to look rough, mm. you know, because I, I admire what she did. And I did that. And then I'd sort of started doing a bit of drag around clubs just because I thought it was fun. And a few people had said to me, why don't you do this? You'd be very good at it. And so I did, but I was, I didn't have an act. I wrote parody songs to like 90s hip hop, R&B things. I'd rewrite the words just to make like filthy jokes and tell some jokes. It was awful. I used to do this terrible thing where I used to, if the audience weren't being nice or if they weren't listening, I'd be like, oh, I want to dedicate this next song. I just checked my phone before I came out and I saw the news about David Attenborough. So I just want to dedicate this song. And the audience would all go, oh, like, oh I'm just kidding. He's fine. But now I've got your attention. Let's do the next song. And they Amazing. Yeah. But you just think, no, you can't, you can't do that. I told <laughs> it once and a girl cried in the front row. Thought, yeah, I think I, I think I've lost this audience. Well, she should have listened then, you know, in the first. Well, place. exactly, exactly. Also, the speed of social media probably would have been gone out on Twitter that something terrible had happened. Yeah, <laughs> just crazy. But I was but sort of doing bits of drag around, and it it wasn't. I didn't feel connected to it until a woman I met at one of these shows was an older lady, and she said, "Why did you get into drag to begin with?" And I said, "Oh, I really like Marlena Dietrich. Really, that's why." And she said, oh, I knew her daughter and her daughter used to live in London and they lived opposite each other. And when Marlena died, she gave this woman a lot of stuff. So this woman has two glass doorknobs that were on Marlena's bedroom door. And so she said, do you want them? And I said, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, I met her for lunch and she gave me them. And I told a friend of mine this and he's like, oh, God, just make the show. Like, what more do you need? Like, how many more signs do you need? And I thought, well, yeah, if I approach it, like drag as theatre, that's interesting because that's, that's what I understand. I understand the theatre part of it. The bit that I wasn't getting was the club feeling like, yeah, here's a quick joke, fierce, whatever. But as a tool to tell a story, that's interesting. 
And so I thought, oh, I, I could do that. And originally, the Marlena thing, it was meant to be half me and half her. We will be doing our very first live messy musing over on Instagram on Friday the 1st of May at 5pm UK time. We know that lots of our listeners are listening in from all over the world. So if you don't already, follow us on Instagram. It's myamazing.mess. Click the follow button and then you'll be able to see when we go live. We'd love to hear from you, hear your questions. And Liv and I will be, of course, talking from our different homes about how creatives and how all of us in general are just finding the lockdown and going through this bizarre thing that we're all all going through together. So we hope it'll be a really big community feel and we'd love to be able to hear from some of our listeners. So join us over there on Friday the 1st of May at 5pm UK time and we look forward to seeing you there.